Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. Welcome to today's show as we continue to investigate the question, Is Biblical Creation Really Just a Myth? On our last show, we were discussing some of the big problems for the standard Big Bang model, but the truth is creationists don't have a fully worked out, accepted solution either. Nobody has a complete physical theory that fully explains the universe. And we've mentioned before that a purely materialistic solution has to include effects and events that are outside the current laws of physics. It's simply unavoidable. And on our last show, we documented that the standard Big Bang is based upon metaphysical conjectures and assumptions made deliberately to avoid the appearance of purpose and design. Listen to that show on my website for details. Now let's move forward and consider the single largest problem for the biblical creation account. We need to define this. It's called the light travel time problem. Consider two points in the universe that are distant from each other. In fact, they're so far apart that there has not been sufficient time for light to have traveled from one point to another. But apparently, light has done so. It has traveled from one point to another. The biblical creation account is challenged this way. How can we see light on the earth from stars and galaxies that are millions of light years away if the earth is only a few thousand years old? That's a very excellent question. And all of the young earth creationists' attempts to answer this that are older than 20 years are really insufficient or unsatisfying. However, don't be fooled and think that this problem exists only for the biblical creation view. The standard Big Bang model also has the same problem. It's referred to as the horizon problem. This problem is that the cosmic microwave background radiation is incredibly uniform. The temperature is almost exactly the same everywhere. And to achieve such uniformity, there must have been some process in the early universe that homogenized the radiation. Well, consider radiation coming to us from one direction in the universe that's taken about 15 billion years to get here, and radiation coming from the other direction that's also taken about 15 billion years to get here. In order for those locations to have shared radiation, it would take 30 billion years, which is much older than the age of the universe in any Big Bang model. Inflation theory purports to solve this problem by saying that all the mixing took place when the universe was very small and light could have traveled to all parts of it in the time available. Now, there actually are some problems with this solution, but that's not the purpose that we want to discuss today. Just understand that the Big Bang also has a light travel time problem, as does the biblical model. And so logically, the existence of a problem like that can't be used to discriminate between these two different models. But we need to discuss the young earth creationist solutions to this model. Now, unfortunately, it's simply impossible to actually discuss this issue without discussing physics. So clear your heads, have a sip of coffee, and put on your thinking caps. We're discussing the question of how is it possible for someone on the Earth to see the light coming from galaxies millions of light years away if the Earth is only 6,000 years old? We need to discuss one of the implications of general relativity. 
and it goes against common sense, time itself is not absolute. That is, two objects can experience the rate of time flowing differently than each other. This effect is called time dilation, and it's been used in science fiction since at least the 1930s, and it's been discussed in science for over 100 years. There's at least two different ways to cause this effect to occur. Perhaps the more familiar of the two is often described as the twin paradox. That was a thought experiment that demonstrates this strange manifestation of time dilation in modern physics as introduced by Albert Einstein in the theory of relativity. Consider two twins named Biff and Cliff. By the way, I'm borrowing this particular illustration from the Twin Paradox page at physics.about.com. So consider two twins, Biff and Cliff, and on their 20th birthday, Biff decides to get in a spaceship and take off into outer space, traveling at nearly the speed of light. He journeys around the cosmos at this speed for about five years, returning to the Earth when he's 25 years old. Cliff, on the other hand, remains on the Earth. When Biff returns, it turns out that Cliff is now 95 years old. What happened? According to relativity, two frames of reference that move differently from each other experience time differently, a process known as time dilation. Because Biff was moving so rapidly, time was, in effect, moving slower for him. This can be calculated precisely using Lorentz transformations, which are a standard part of relativity. So let's ask the question, how old is Biff? He has experienced 25 years of life, but he was also born the same moment as Cliff, which was 90 years ago. So is he 25 years old or 90 years old? In this case, the answer is both, depending on which way you're measuring age. According to his driver's license, which measures Earth time and is no doubt expired, he's 90. According to his body, he's 25. Neither age is right or wrong. There are other aspects to the twin paradox, but they don't really concern us. Just understand, Cliff and Biff experienced time flowing at different rates. Now, there's another type of time dilation called gravitational time dilation. An intense gravity field slows down time as compared to a less intense gravity field. Physics.about.com describes this as following. Time dilation becomes most apparent when one of the objects is moving at nearly the speed of light, but it manifests at even slower speeds, here are just a few ways we know time dilation actually takes place. Clocks in airplanes click at different rates from clocks on the ground. Putting a clock on a mountain and thus elevating it, but keeps it stationary relative to ground-based clocks, also results in slightly different rates. So a clock at the top of the mountain clicks differently than a clock at the bottom of the mountain. The global positioning system, GPS, has to adjust for time dilation. Ground-based devices have to communicate with satellites. To work, they have to be programmed to compensate for the time differences based on their speeds and gravitational influences. And certain unstable particles exist for a very brief period of time before decaying, but scientists can observe them as lasting longer because they're moving so fast that time dilation means the time that the particles experience before decaying is different from the time experienced in the at-rest laboratory that's doing the observations. So the bottom line is, this isn't science fiction any longer. This is real, tested, measured, 
and fully understood within general relativity, and we actually compensate for it in our technology, such as GPS systems. So the bottom line, time is not absolute. That's the critical part of this entire discussion. Now think about the usual problem posed for the creationist model. How can we see the galaxies that are far away? It is making the assumption that the rate of time has been the same for the entire universe throughout its lifetime so far. That is, it's thinking as if time is absolute as it was in a purely Newtonian physics system. However, we know this is not reality. Okay, okay, so time is not absolute. So what? What does that have to do with the biblical model working? We'll discuss that in a moment. We're discussing the light travel time problem for a biblical creation model. That is, how can we see galaxies that are millions of light years away if the Earth is only a few thousand years old? And in the previous section, we established that physics has well documented that time is not absolute. And now we'll talk about what implications might that have for a biblical understanding of cosmology. I think the best single source for a discussion of this subject is John Hartnett's book, Starlight, Time, and the New Physics, which was published in 2007. Now, it's a fallacy to assume that the credentials of a scientist imply that his work has to always be correct or not, but because it is so often stated that there aren't any really qualified creationist scientists, let me give you an idea about John Hartnett's background. He received both the BSc with honors and a PhD with distinction from the Department of Physics at the University of Western Australia. He works with the Frequency Standards and Metrology Research Group at the university, where he holds the rank of associate professor. That would be a full professor in the U.S. Dr. Hartnett's research interests include the development of ultra-stable, cryogenically cooled microwave oscillators based on a sapphire crystal, ultra-low-noise radar, tests of fundamental theories of physics, such as special and general relativity, and measurement of drift in fundamental constants and their cosmological implications. John has a keen interest in cosmology and how it applies to the biblical creationist view. In addition, his work in the ongoing development of new physics has attracted the interest and funding of the university. This work has established that there is no need to assume the existence of dark matter or dark energy to explain observations in the universe, and that's the basis of the material in this book about new physics. Dr. Hartnett has published more than 120 papers in scientific journals and holds two patents. In his book, Hartnett discusses several young earth creationist models that have been proposed in the past, kind of walks through them and discusses some of the difficulties that uh, several of them have. One new type of model that began about 1994, I believe, with Dr. Russ Humphreys, another creationist physicist, who proposed a model using a common-sense geometry for the universe, and one in which there is a center, as soon as you have a center to the universe and consider something like a Euclidean space, all of a sudden you have gravitational differences from one point to another. And in his model, Dr. Humphreys included the gravitational differences and pointed out that under certain assumptions and certain circumstances of development, it's quite possible that the clocks here on Earth 
near the center of the universe, and the evidence is that we are near the center, that those clocks would run much slower than clocks way out there toward the fringes of the universe, because there would be a much greater gravity well here in the center than out there in his proposed model of how things develop over time. So that model used the general relativity proven mechanism of gravitational time dilation to explain how it's possible that in one day of Earth time, billions of years could pass by the clocks out there. So distant galaxies could actually experience billions of years of time while the Earth only experienced hours of time. It's much like the twin paradox we discussed earlier, but it's based upon a gravitational dilation rather than an acceleration-based dilation. Nothing particularly funky going on here. Now, this solution isn't perfect, and Dr. Humphreys has continued to develop it. In fact, he developed a new metric a few years ago that he's applying to this issue. But it opened the door to the notion of applying general relativity and time dilation effects to this issue of how did light from distant galaxies get to the Earth if the Earth is only a few thousand years old. So that developing type of physical model based upon gravitational time dilation and a universe which has a center, as opposed to the Big Bang assumption of uniformity, is in fact one possible type of solution to this problem. There's still much work to be done, but don't forget, the Big Bang model has enormous issues of its own. So it's not like we could pick a model that works perfectly, because none exists. Now, Dr. Hartnett's proposed model is different from this in that, as he noted, he's involving something he's calling new physics. Now, I hope you're asking yourself the question, why would anybody be talking about new physics? What's that all about? When have we ever needed new physics? Well, let me ask you a question. What planet is Spock from? And I don't mean Dr. Spock. I mean the one in Star Trek. He was from the planet Vulcan, remember? And we know the planet Vulcan was very, very hot. Well, what's going on with that? Did you know that they actually proposed there was a planet Vulcan? in our solar system, and that it would have been very, very hot? Let me tell you how that happened. This is recounted in Chapter 3 of Hartnett's book. Towards the close of the 19th century, astronomers noticed that the orbit of the planet Mercury was being perturbed and proposed that there was some unknown agency at work. When the then-standard Newtonian physics was applied to its dynamics over a long period of time, a discrepancy was found in the amount the perihelion would advance. Even though near circular, the orbit is slightly elliptical, and over centuries the ellipse would not retrace itself, but slightly advance, forming a rosetta. A certain amount of this advance was expected from the pole of the other planets, but there remained an unexplained anomalous portion. It was measured to be a minuscule 43 seconds of arc per century. Yet it was a real problem for physicists trying to determine the dynamics of the heavenly bodies in the solar system. Now, this gives you an idea of how well we could measure the position and movement of objects in our solar system, and how well Newtonian physics worked that such a tiny deviation was noticeable. Now it was small, but it was real, and it needed to be explained. So the basic problem was, there's movement of an object that isn't explained by the gravity of all the other objects that we can actually see. 
The solution was to propose the presence of dark matter that was unseen, yet was gravitationally perturbing the orbits of the inner planets. It seems that, like Ptolemy's epicycles, introduced to maintain the Earth-centered cosmology of Aristarchus in the pre-Copernican era, dark matter was invented to keep the status quo. The form of the dark matter envisioned by theorists of the day varied. Some preferred an inner asteroid belt within Mercury's orbit, and some an additional planet, the planet Vulcan, which was said to orbit very close to the Sun, but in such a manner that it was always conveniently hidden from view by Earth observers on the other side of the Sun. They didn't seem to mind that an object near Mercury would have a shorter orbital period than Earth. In other words, this solution never made sense. In 1915, with the publication of Einstein's General Theory of Relativity, this problem was solved. In fact, Einstein was able to calculate exactly the 43 arc seconds. This meant that dark matter was unnecessary and all that had been lacking was new, or I should say, the correct physics. Newton's physics was found wanting when space and time were warped significantly in the vicinity of the sun. This was the case for the orbit of the planet Mercury. Einstein's physics was needed to solve the problem. I contend that we are seeing a similar problem again now on all scales of the universe. We're discussing Dr. John Hartnett's proposed solution for the how can we see light from distant galaxies on the Earth problem, the light having traveled millions of light years and yet the Earth only being thousands of years old. We're discussing his solution in which he indicates that we need new physics. Now, to understand why, let's look at what's going on in the standard model at the moment. There's really two ways to figure out how much mass there is in astronomical objects, like the sun or like a solar system or like a galaxy for that matter. One way is to look at how much light we receive from it, the luminosity, and from that estimate how much matter is out there glowing. The other way is to look at how the objects move and calculate how much mass that implies given the Newtonian equations for movement and gravity. The problem is that the amount of mass calculated from the dynamics, the motions of stars within galaxies, is always a lot more than what's observed by the luminosity. In other words, it appears there's a whole bunch of missing matter, stuff we can't see, dark matter. Astronomers calculate a mass-to-luminosity ratio, M over L. That's how much matter from dynamical considerations divided by how much matter based on luminosity. If M over L were 1 and they agreed, then you would need no dark matter at all. Well, how bad is the problem and what does it look like out there? Interestingly, the problem gets worse or the discrepancy gets larger the further we go out and the greater we go out in the scale of the objects being looked at. And the problem of missing or dark matter is there on the scale size of the entire universe as a whole also. To give you an idea how the problem scales, the visible rotation curves of spiral galaxies with a radius of about 30,000 light years, the problem there is we can only see one-half to one-fifth of the implied total amount of matter. You get a different result with elliptical galaxies, where we only see one-fifth to one-twelfth of the total amount of matter. When you look at the Milky Way from satellite dwarf galaxies, now we've got a radius of 600,000 light years. We can only see one-fortieth to one-seventieth of the total matter. 
And if you consider large clusters of galaxies, 2 to 6 million light years in radius, the discrepancy in mass calculations is so great that we conclude we can only see 1 400th to 1 600th of the total mass. In fact, when you look at the universe as a whole, the current numbers indicate that only 4% of all of it is what we call normal matter. In other words, stuff we can see. 74% is dark energy, which is causing an acceleration in the expansion. And 22% is dark matter. And we have no idea what either of those are. So of all the matter in the universe, we're told that 85% of it is dark matter, not the normal stuff we can see. Now remember that when dark matter was required to try to resolve the issue of the orbit of Mercury, it didn't behave properly under Newtonian physics. The correct solution was an extension to Newtonian physics called general relativity developed by Einstein. Once the correct physics was used, the necessity of the fudge factor of dark matter disappeared. Enter Moshe Carmeli the Albert Einstein Professor of Theoretical Physics from Ben-Gurion University in Israel. Dr. Carmeli was author and co-author to more than 120 research papers and 10 books. He wrote detailed textbooks on general relativity, group theory, things like that. He was an absolute expert in this area. Well, in the early 90s, Carmeli sat around his kitchen table with a pencil and paper and worked on an extension to general relativity. Carmeli noticed we really only measure and observe two things, distance and velocity in astronomical objects. He developed a space velocity extension to Einstein's general theory, and it incorporates a new dimension, the velocity of the expanding fabric of space. And by the way, two years prior to observations determining it, he predicted the universe must be accelerating its expansion. Dr. Hartnett worked directly with Dr. Carmeli and extended his work in using it as applied to a young Earth creationist cosmology. Extending Carmeli's work, and by properly describing the matter density dependence on redshift, Hartnett was able to eliminate the need for dark matter on the scale of the cosmos as a whole. Also, Carmelian cosmology does not explicitly incorporate a dark energy term. Dark energy really has resulted from the application of incorrect physics to the large-scale structure of the cosmos. Using the correct physics, what has been perceived as dark energy is really a description of the properties of the vacuum itself. Vacuum is not nothing, and it has properties that the new metric, that is the new physics, correctly incorporates. The new physics correctly describes the expanding universe without the need for dark energy, cosmological constant, or any other exotic ideas. It's been extended to the analysis of the dynamics of single galaxies, clusters of galaxies, superclusters, and the whole universe, where the new physics describes the motions without the need for exotic dark matter. As Hartnett writes, these results have the potential to cause another revolution in our understanding of the cosmos. It is akin to the time at the beginning of the last century when Einstein rid the solar system of dark matter. And since cosmological general relativity, the Carmeli theory, is a superset of general relativity, all of the evidence for general relativity also applies to cosmological relativity. Okay, we have physical evidence of the expansion of the universe, and the Bible describes God stretching out the heavens. Now, if we remove Hawking's ideology and look at a common-sense universe, which is isotropic but has a unique center, with our galaxy at the center, 
And then consider that the expansion of the universe occurred on day four of the creation week when the Bible says God created the sun and moon and stars. Then during day four, as the fabric of space was rapidly accelerated in this expansion, an enormous time dilation occurs. Earth clocks tick one trillion times slower during this time than they do now. And now that that accelerated expansion has finished, Earth clocks tick at the same rate as clocks everywhere else, subject, of course, to gravitational time dilation, which in the current universe would be quite small. So to sum it up, this new physics is completely consistent with the structure of the universe, the observed mass ratios in the universe, eliminates the need for fudge factors like dark matter and dark energy, and explains how Adam and Eve could look up at the heavens and see the stars. Perhaps science is catching up with what really happened. At any rate, there's no reason to disbelieve the biblical account of origins. See creationmythormiracle.com. 